Thank you, Charlotte, for that lovely introduction. And thank you, Bioneers, for this invitation. And thank you to Judy Brady, who is here in the audience somewhere, activist, editor, and friend, who first set me writing about environmental health. I'd like to tell you about three bets that I've made. 30 years ago, in between my sophomore and junior years of college, I was diagnosed with bladder cancer. Those are amazing words to say at a podium. 30 years ago, I had cancer. I had just turned 20. I was hoping I would lo live long enough to have sex with someone. I hadn't done that yet. I could not have imagined, while lying in my hospital bed exhaling anesthesia, that someday I would stand before an audience of thousands and say, 30 years ago, I had cancer. Unbelievable. So I am lucky and grateful to be here with you today. A few weeks ago, on a sunny afternoon, the phone rang while I was trying to meet a writing deadline. It was the nurse in my urologist's office. She was calling to say the pathologist had found in the urine collected from my last cystoscopic checkup abnormal cell clusters and also blood. After I hung up, I looked out the window of my small house where the sun still shone on the last of the marigolds in the tomato vines. I looked down at my computer screen where the cursor still blinked on the same paragraph. I could hear in the kitchen the tomatoes still bobbing around in the stock pot that was steaming away on the stove. The world was still the same, but it felt to me suddenly altered. Or was it? I provided a second urine sample for further testing, and based on the results of that, a third sample was set out for genetic analysis. Two days ago, I got the call from the urology nurse. The results were normal. So what am I trying to say here? Are you fine or not, Sandra? What's the end of the story? Well, I don't know. I am living within a period of time known as watchful waiting. Much of my adult life has been watchful waiting. Watch means vigilance, screening tests, imaging, blood work, self-advocacy, second opinions, and hours logged in hospital parking garages. Wait means you go back to your half-finished essay to the tomatoes on the stove. You lay plans and carry on within the confines of ambiguity. You meet deadlines and make grocery lists, and sometimes you jump when the phone rings on a sunny afternoon. 30 years ago, I had cancer. Soon after I left the hospital, I went back to the university, resumed my life as a biology major, and began mucking around in the medical literature. I did find someone to have sex with. That didn't take long. <laughs> it also didn't take long for me to learn that bladder cancer is considered a quintessential environmental cancer, meaning we have more evidence for a link between toxic chemical exposures and bladder cancer risk than for almost any other kind of cancer with data going back more than 100 years. I discovered that the identification of bladder carcinogens does not preclude their ongoing use in commerce, 
just because through careful scientific study, we learn that a chemical causes cancer doesn't mean we ban it from the marketplace. I also discovered that in spite of all this evidence, the word carcinogen and the word environment rarely appeared in the pamphlets on cancer in my doctor's offices and waiting rooms, nor were these words used much in conversations I had with my various healthcare providers who were interested instead in my family medical history. I was happy enough to provide it. There is a lot of cancer in my family. My mother was diagnosed with breast cancer at age 44. I have uncles with colon cancer, prostate cancer, stromal tumor. I have an aunt who died of the same kind of bladder cancer, transitional cell carcinoma that I had. But here's the punchline to my family story. I'm adopted. <laughs> I'm not related to my family by chromosomes. So I began to ask hard questions about the presumption that what runs in families necessarily runs in genes. I began to ask, what else do families have in common? Maybe drinking water wells. And when I looked at the literature on cancer among adult adoptees, I learned that in fact the chance of an adopted person dying of cancer is far more closely related to whether or not her adoptive parents had died of cancer than whether or not her biological parents had met this fate. But you would never know that based on the questions asked on medical intake forms. So 30 years ago, as a college undergraduate, I made a bet. I bet that my cancer diagnosis had something to do with the environment in which I lived as a child. And I think I was right about this. As I learned years later while researching my book, Living Downstream, the county where I grew up along the east bluff of the Illinois River has statistically elevated cancer rates. Three dozen different industries line the river valley there and farmers practice pesticide intensive agriculture. Hazardous waste is imported as far away as New Jersey, and the drinking water wells contain traces of both farm chemicals and industrial chemicals, including those with demonstrable links to bladder cancer. I still love the place that I grew up, and that love story is also part of Living Downstream, as well as the forthcoming film that is based on the book. 30 years ago, I had cancer. 20 years ago, in the fall of 1988, I was a graduate student in biology at the University of Michigan, and I made another bet. I worked as an opinion writer at the Michigan Daily, the student newspaper there. My editor and I laid bets as to which system would collapse first, economy or ecology. I said ecology. I think I was wrong. I think we were both wrong. They seem to be crumbling simultaneously. Let's compare these twin ecosystems for a minute. Our economy and our ecology have in common, it seems to me, a number of attributes. Both are complex, globalized systems whose interconnections are little understood until something goes wrong. Who knew that mortgages in California could lead to bankruptcy in Iceland? But there it is. Who knew that the miracle of pollination depends on the synchronicity of vastly different environmental cues, but the ongoing decoupling of ambient temperature, which awakens the bees, from day length, which awakens the flowers, reveals that it is so dependent. In both systems, eroding diversity creates fragility, 
as when financial systems merge and collapse, as when farming systems become monocultures and thereby vulnerable to catastrophic pest outbreaks, and damage to both systems is made worse by positive feedback loops. In the economic world, panic and fear drive investment decisions that lead to more panic and fear. In the ecological world, greenhouse gases raise temperatures that melt permafrost, and melted permafrost releases more greenhouse gases. Here's a key difference, though. For one of our two ecosystems, we are engaged in drastic and unprecedented measures to rescue it, even though no one seems to understand it very well. And as for our other ecosystem, well, it's considered too depressing and overwhelming to even talk about. Last week, I visited a number of college campuses, and here is what I ask students to imagine. Imagine the ecological equivalence of Ben Bernanke and Henry Paulson visiting the White House. Who would that be? Let's say Gus Speth and Bill McGibbon. They report that one in every four mammals appears to be heading toward extinction. The jet stream which drives nutrient cycling in our oceans is starting to get wobbly, while dead zones in our oceans are growing. The oceans, they remind the president, provide us half of our planetary oxygen. Shoveling coal into ovens to generate electricity is loading the atmosphere with mercury, which rains down, is transformed by ancient bacteria into the powerful brain poison methylmercury, which is then siphoned up the food chain concentrating as it goes so that nearly all of the freshwater streams and lakes east of the Mississippi River are unfishable, and we now must warn women and children against eating too many tuna fish sandwiches. Here on land, bees, bats, and other pollinators are disappearing with possibly dire consequences for our food supply. Aquifers in several states are drying up, and chemical contamination is threatening surface water as well as groundwater. In short, our air, food, and drinking water are threatened. Ergo, we need a $700 billion bailout right now to invest in alternative energy. We're going to invest that in alternative energy and reform our chemical regulatory policies. And if we don't take emergency action immediately, we don't know what will happen, but it will be terrible. Our ecology will tank. <laughs> the fact that nothing close to that is happening is the difference between ecology and economy, both of which share an etymology, eco, from the Greek oikos, meaning household. Ten years ago, Ten years ago, in the fall of 1998, I gave birth to a child. I became a cancer patient at 20 and the mother at the brink of 40, which I know isn't how most people's lives are ordered, but that's how mine worked out. After 20 years as a solitary adult ecologist, I became a habitat, an inland ocean. <laughs> an inland ocean with a marine mammal swimming around inside of me. I became a water cycle, a food chain, a jet stream. My daughter's name is Faith. She is 10 years old, and my son's name is Elijah, and he is seven. My son is named for the abolitionist Elijah Lovejoy, who hails from my home state of Illinois. I'll leave it to you to imagine why an adopted cancer survivor might name a daughter Faith. My daughter is planning a career as a marine biologist. She wants to write her first book on the octopus. <laughs> My son wishes to be the president, a farmer, or a member of the Beatles. 
He figures there are at least two job openings there already. <laughs> Since becoming a mother, I've made another bet. I am betting that in between my children's adult lives and my own, an environmental human rights movement will arise. It's one whose seeds have already been sown, and it's one with a dual focus. First, the environmental human rights movement will take up with urgency the task of rescue and repair of our ecological system upon which all of life depends. It is a movement that will recognize the truth of the following statement, quote, nothing is more important to human beings than an ecologically functioning, life-sustaining biosphere on Earth. We cannot live long or well without a functioning biosphere, and so it is worth everything we have, unquote. These are the opening sentences of a powerful new manifesto, Law for the Ecological Age, authored by attorney and biochemist Joseph Guth and published in the Vermont Journal of Environmental Law. I commend it to you. At the same time, this environmental human rights movement will take up with equal fervor the task of divorcing our economy from its current dependencies on chemical toxicants that are known to trespass inside our bodies without our consent, thus violating, as some have argued, our security of person. Let's quickly look at how this works. Our current environmental regulatory apparatus does not require rigorous toxicological testing of chemicals as a precondition for marketing them, as we do, for example, for pharmaceuticals. It also makes it very difficult to ban chemicals once they are in commerce. Of the 80,000 synthetic chemicals now in the market, exactly five have been outlawed under the Toxic Substances Control Act since 1976. And to learn more about the history of this law, I commend to you the very good book, Exposed, by investigative journalist Mark Shapiro. Our current environmental regulatory apparatus allows economic benefits to be balanced against human health risks. It fails to take into account the fact that we are all exposed, to use Rachel Carson's words, to a changing kaleidoscope of chemicals over our lifetimes and not just one chemical at a time. In umbilical cord blood alone, 287 different chemicals have been detected. These include pesticides, stain removers, wood preservatives, mercury, and flame retardants. Our current regulatory apparatus does not take into account timing of exposure. And yet, science clearly shows that toxic exposures during key moments of infant and child development, especially during the opera of embryonic development during pregnancy, raises risks for harm that are disproportionate to dose. Benzoapyrene, an ingredient in tobacco smoke, diesel exhaust, and soot, can damage eggs in the ovaries of mammals in a way that may reduce fertility. Exposure to pesticides in men can reduce sperm count. Thus, our environmental policies may be influencing our very ability to get pregnant and have children. And if pregnancy is achieved, exposure to certain chemicals raises the risk that it will be lost through miscarriage, or what we in the scientific community call spontaneous abortion. Evidence suggests that the pesticide methoxychlor has this power, as do certain chemical solvents. And here is where I am interested in engaging the pro-life community in a dialogue, because whether you see this as a problem, as I do, as a violation of women's reproductive rights, or whether you see this as a problem, as some members of my family do, as a violation of fetal sanctity, 
Maybe we can all agree, pro-life and pro-choice, that any chemical with the power to extinguish a human pregnancy has no rightful place in our economy. When toxic chemicals enter the story of human development during the fifth and sixth months of pregnancy, when the brain is just getting itself knitted together, the risk may be a learning or developmental disability. Of the 3,000 chemicals produced in high volume in the United States, 200 of these are neurotoxicants, and another 1,000 are suspected of affecting the nervous system. For a thorough analysis of this issue, I refer you to the Scientific Consensus Statement on Environmental Agents Associated with Neurodevelopmental Disorders, released last February by the Learning and Developmental Disabilities Initiative. Some chemicals, such as PCBs, have the power to shorten human gestation and so raise the risk for premature birth, which is the leading cause of disability in this country. Some chemicals raise the risk for pediatric cancers, which are rising more rapidly than cancers among adults. Some chemicals can raise the risk for early puberty in girls, which in turn raises the risk for breast cancer in adulthood. I'll be talking in detail about the trend in pubertal timing among US girls in my workshop this afternoon. In the meantime, I hope I've given you a flavor of how chemical toxicants can sabotage the story of child development and so make urgent the need for restructuring our chemical policies along the principles of precaution and green design. And I might add that uh, the end of life is another period of time of great vulnerability. And uh, there's another book I can recommend to you, uh, authored by Ted Shetler, Jill Stein, and colleagues, called The Environmental Threats to Healthy Aging, which investigates how toxic exposures can contribute to late-life dementing disorders, such as Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. That book is just out this week. So I am betting, I am betting that chemical reform will be a cornerstone of this new environmental human rights movement that I see getting underway. I am betting that my children and the generation of children that they are a part will, by the time they are my age, they'll consider it unthinkable to allow cancer-causing chemicals, reproductive toxicants, and neurological poisons to freely circulate in our economy. They will find it unthinkable to assume an attitude of silence and willful ignorance about our ecology. In the same way that I look back on the life of Rachel Carson, my mentor in all this, who died when I was five years old, and I find it unthinkable that she could not speak about her own cancer diagnosis, even while dying, as I have spoken about my diagnosis with you today. 30 years of feminism lies between my life as an adult scientist and Rachel Carson's, and that human rights movement, feminism, ended the silence around the personal experience of women's cancer so that I have never had to fear, as did Carson, that my status as a cancer survivor will be somehow used to impeach my science. And in the same way, I look back on the life of Abraham Lincoln, whose portrait hangs in every schoolroom in Illinois, and marvel that our economy was once dependent on slave labor. Unthinkable. I believe our grandchildren will look back on us now and marvel that our economy was once dependent on chemicals that were killing the planet and killing ourselves, and they will think of it as unthinkable. Now, I am willing to concede the point that this environmental human rights movement that I am betting on 
is less an evidence-based prediction than a mother's fervent hope that my children will never have to fear the phone ringing on a Sunday afternoon and it's bringing bad news from the pathology lab. I am willing to admit that this bet is a wish that my children will grow up in a world with a functioning jet stream and some ice caps and a few coral reefs and some octopi for my daughter to write her first book about and some honeybees to help my son, the farmer, grow some apples. It's a wish that his polar bear Halloween costume not outlast the species. Wishful or not, I am not willing to be wrong about this bet because my children's lives are inextricably bound to the abiding ecology of this planet, which is worth everything I have. An environmental human rights movement is the vision under which I labor, from which I am not free to desist, and which may, if we all work together in concert, become a self-fulfilling prophecy. May it be so.